Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, this week has been rather interesting. Mike Pence here, the vice president, has told the NBA that they're acting as a wholly owned subsidiary of China. And he also took a swipe at Nike, pretty hard swipe at Nike. I'm going to be looking at that. We have BlizzCon coming out next week. This is a big yearly event that Blizzard, which is Blizzard Activision, that they put on every year. We had some drama last year, and I'm going to share my thoughts on this, what it means for the company and potential drama that could ensue related to the whole Hong Kong incident. And then, of course, I know, I I can't stop talking about this company, WeWork. The fallout of it is just so amazing, especially the antics that Adam Newman has done with this company to enrich himself with it is just incredible. Now, before jumping into any of that, I got to talk about my portfolio here for a minute. This is a portfolio on M1 Finance, it's a dividend growth portfolio kind of mostly a dividend growth portfolio it has some other aspects to it but the performance over the past week is in the red and i think it's good to show that i show when i'm making money and i'm going to show when i lose money the portfolio is down 100 bucks over the week it's not a lot that's barely a movement with sixty-two thousand dollars in the portfolio 100 bucks represents 0.17 percent so this isn't anything that is really concerning but it's important to know If you're new to investing, which a handful of people here are, they're just starting off, they're just funding their portfolio, they're jumping in this to begin with, the stock market goes up and it goes down. You need to get used to seeing this on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, and then at some point we'll hit a recession when it goes down a lot. Now, the past week I'm down. If I go to the past month here, I'm up about $955. If I go right here and get a breakdown of what is capital gains, which is just the value of a share going up and what is earned dividends, earned dividends for the last month, it's been this way consistently, where for the past 30 days, I've been earning over $200 a month. And the point where you'll consistently earn over $200 a month with a yield of about 37 to 4% is around this mark here. It's around $60,000. Just based off the percentage yield and the amount of money you need to have to be able to earn $200 a month from your portfolio, it's about $60,000. Now, a lot of people go, that's insane. You know, $200 a month is not a lot of money, but $60,000 is. And they don't realize the compounding long-term effect of these $200 getting reinvested over and over again. Um, I don't know the exact math offhand, but you can type it into a compound calculator that if you invested $200 a month into just like a 4% return over 30 years, it's going to be hundreds of thousands of dollars. So this represents a lot of money, and especially given the fact that I'm not working for it. I don't have to trade my time for this. I update my portfolio and I do this because I enjoy doing it. I like doing individual holdings. I just as much could very well do ETFs, which are completely hands-off. And then it would be just totally 100% passive. Now, if I go down here and I look at how my portfolio is broken up, these top slices here make up the most of it. You can see this circle pie over here. These are the chunks. It highlights which one I'm looking at. So I have a lot of real estate, a lot of bonds, finance, healthcare, utilities. Now, this is for the past month. If I did this all time, the return would look a lot better. But just in the past month, this is the return. You can see that in the past 30 days, industrials is the sector that has really been hurting. It's down 1.2%. I don't have a lot of money in industrials, relatively speaking, to the rest of my portfolio. But if I look at it, the biggest losers for the past month have been Boeing and Lockheed Martin. Boeing in particular, it's down 10% in my portfolio in the last month. 
And of course, I went over this before. They've had nothing but bad news. As investigators are looking into what went on to, to make this happen where they got these planes in the air, of course, they're unraveling a lot of dirt, a lot of things that Boeing needs to do better. So that's caused the stock price to go down. Of course, I think eventually their planes will be back in the air. They're still a duopoly. I don't see that changing anytime soon. It's a holding that I still plan on having. All right, so moving on from that, I want to talk about China for a bit. I've been asked previously, up until about a month ago, I got asked semi-frequently why I have no investments in China. Well, part of the reason that most of my investments are in the U.S. is because that's where I'm from. I'm most familiar with the companies there. I think it has a relatively good economy and you know good prospects, that type of thing. But I'm also fine investing in Europe. I'm fine investing in Australia or Canada or any other first world Western democracy. And part of the reason why is because although our governments can do things that hurt certain industries, hurt certain companies, right? Healthcare has some concerns in the U.S. if we move to a single payer system or something like that. So there are some concerns there. But I've always answered that the reason that I don't invest in China, I do not trust the people regulating those companies, that there's already risk whenever you invest. If you invest in the U.S. or Europe or Canada, there's risk in those investments. You're investing in companies that might fail. That's a risk. To add in a dictatorship government into that mix of risk, I think drastically increases the amount of risk you're facing. And for me, that's not worth it. Well, a lot of people actually said, that, oh, the risk is overblown. China would never do anything to sever like good businesses, right? Over small things like that. And, you know, you're being unreasonable and this is all overblown. Well, we saw in a two week period, one tweet from one NBA team owner, the amount of damage that caused. It almost severed the entire relationship with the NBA to China over one tweet. And then Blizzard, you've seen the backlash of one of the players supporting Hong Kong in an interview. Uh, the amount of punitive actions they took against that player, it's caused a lot of problems. And this is something that you should be aware of as an investor, the companies you're picking, the amount of exposure they have in China, and the amount of influence China has over those companies that you're investing in. The overall reception of this politically has been very negative from both Democrats and Republicans. This is one of the things where both sides have come together and said, we don't like the way that these companies are responding to this. For the most part, that's been the response to it. Here's Vice President Pence weighing in on it. Far too many American multinational corporations have kowtowed to the lure of China's money and markets by muzzling not only criticism of the Chinese Communist Party, but even affirmative expressions of American values. Nike promotes itself as a so-called social justice champion. But when it comes to Hong Kong, it prefers checking its social conscience at the door. Nike stores in China actually removed their Houston Rockets merchandise from their shelves to join the Chinese government in protest against the Rockets general manager's seven-word tweet, which read, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. And some of the NBA's biggest players and owners who routinely exercise their freedom to criticize this country lose their voices when it comes to the freedom and rights of the people of China. In siding with the Chinese Communist Party and silencing free speech, the NBA is acting like a wholly owned subsidiary of that authoritarian regime. So obviously, Vice President Pence there is not overly thrilled with the way that these companies, the NBA and Nike, have responded to this controversy. He's highlighting, he, he doesn't 
outright say the word, but he's highlighting hypocrisy is what he's saying. He's saying these companies will talk about any social cause and, you know, they'll allow their players to attack any politician in the U.S. in any different cause because they're fighting for social justice. They'll allow their employees and they'll allow the players to do that when it's good for business. When standing up against the president or the administration or whatever cause is good for business, but as soon as it might lose money in any way, the companies all of a sudden are very careful with what they say. They're very guarded with what they say. A lot of people are not happy with the way that these companies are handling this. They're planning protests. They're not buying as many products. A lot of people are doing what they can. How much that will actually affect their business is uh, up for debate, but we'll have to wait to see. Now, on that same note, we have Blizzard's convention coming up, and it's going to show off all their amazing games and their new projects that they're working on that everybody's really excited for. Well, that's at least what Blizzard and Activision would want you to believe. In reality, Blizzard, over the past, I don't feel like they've been that good with their public relations at all. You saw the way that they reacted to one of their players supporting the Hong Kong protests. They enforced their rules that they set aside, but the way that it came across was extremely punitive. It wasn't just, hey, we don't want you to talk about politics. It was, hey, we're going to take all your earnings from previous competitions that you've been in and just not pay you that money. Really punitive actions reflected pretty poorly on Blizzard, and they've actually backstepped a lot of that. That shows you how they're handling these type of public issues. With this event, BlizzCon, Bank of America is saying for investors to actually be careful about these events. This from the Market Insider says, Activision Blizzard's annual convention begins next week. Bank of America analysts say investors should look out for these five events. Well, why would they say that? Well, one thing is, is a lot of people are expecting protests about Hong Kong. You're going to get that mentioned. And going into this, I don't think there could be a worse setup for Blizzard. After this last event of them silencing a player and and taking these punitive actions for him, expressing his opinion on the Hong Kong protests, I think there's a lot of room for embarrassing things to happen to Blizzard. People are already planning online protests for the event. And even without these issues going on, again, they've had problems with previous events. BlizzCon in 2018 was an absolute mess. They were revealing one of their biggest franchise games, the Diablo series, where the people that go to BlizzCon and that are fans of Diablo, these are their most hardcore fans. The people that are dressing up in cosplay, the people that grew up playing the game on computer and spent years of their life playing this game, right? These are their biggest fans. And they're coming to a convention because Blizzard said that they're releasing a new Diablo game. And Blizzard's idea... This is the the genius of their public relations, of their marketing that they did here. They decided to take their biggest fans of this franchise, bring them into a gathering, bring them into this event, and reveal that they're offloading the game to a Chinese developer to make it on mobile so you can play the game on your cell phone. These are people that have played the Diablo game for years on desktop. Then they come to this convention. There's tons of hype surrounding it and they're told that it's going to be a mobile cell phone game. Here's how one of the audience members responded when asking a question at this convention. Uh, just was wondering, is this uh, an out-of-season April Fool's joke? <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's, a, it's a fully, uh, fully fledged uh, Diablo experience on, on mobile, which everybody will get to play. That was probably one of the worst moments at that whole convention but there's other highlights of it just going bad 
interesting situation that they're going into. If I'm being realistic with this, I think there's going to be two reasons why people tune in. One is because they actually want to see what Blizzard's coming out with, what new stuff they have in the works. And two, people just wanting to see what drama and embarrassing moments ensue. I think there's a good portion of people that are just watching for that aspect of it. But it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. If the Hong Kong thing doesn't really show up, if it's not that big of a deal, if the protests really don't have an impact, or if it's something that really does have an impact. You know, on the same note, I've already highlighted lots of companies that you've heard about, the the NBA, Nike, Blizzard, that have had less than stellar responses to China's censorship and their control over what people are saying in the West. Majority of people are not happy with the way that these companies have handled the situation, the way that they've responded. But what I want to do is highlight a company and a person that has taken the total opposite approach. Tim Sweeney, who's the CEO, the creator of Epic Games, the founder of the company that owns Fortnite. So this is a massive company. He's taken the totally opposite approach. The Verge contacted him and asked what his thoughts on this subject were, if his players and employees can say whatever they want or if they're going to be restricted. And he said, Epic supports the rights of Fortnite players and creators to speak about politics and human rights. That was his statement. Now, the interesting thing about this is that Tim Sweeney's company, Epic Games, is owned 40% by Tencent, a Chinese firm. He has a minority shareholder that obviously has interest in China doing business there, but he still says, Epic, if you're a player, if you're an employee here, you can talk about whatever you want. You can criticize any policy or anything. Other people press him on it saying, are you sure? What if uh, Tencent comes after you and says that you can't do that? He says, Epic supports everyone's right to speak freely. China players of Fortnite are free to criticize the US or criticize Epic just as equally as all others. So he doubles down on it. I will note that I think it's kind of ironic and funny that the creator of a game like Fortnite, mostly a kid's game, that this programmer and founder of this company has more backbone than the NBA and then Nike and then Blizzard. He's able to take a more principled stand than any of those other companies. I think it's pretty cool to see and he should get some recognition from them. Okay, I know. I'm sorry. We work. I can't stop talking about this company. It's just so absurd or ridiculous whatever adjective you want to give it, this company fits it all. The latest numbers that we have after the fallout of SoftBank bringing its valuation down, WeWork reportedly lays off up to 4,000 employees. So the first day it was 2,000 employees. Now they're apparently laying off 4,000 employees. So that's the update. Total, they had 15,000 employees. So this would bring them down to 11,000 employees. Now we got some other news from WeWork that In many of the acquisitions they've done over the past couple of years, they've paid for those companies almost primarily with their stock. And as you can imagine, the stock price that they paid for these last companies over the past couple of years are not what its stock price is valued at right now. The real estate technology company used its highly valued stock as a way to fund some of its acquisitions. In this article, it says, quote, For a lot of these acquisitions, the shareholders and founders that got stock as a big part of their consideration are definitely not happy, said Ben Sun. We acquired primary portfolio company FieldLens, a mobile collaboration tool for construction projects, primarily for stock in 2017, he said. At that time, the valuation stood at around $21 billion. Now, keep in mind, the valuation that SoftBank just gave WeWork is about $8 billion. So they sold their company to WeWork with stock at a valuation of $21 billion. Now it's worth $8 billion. That's a little bit more than a third 
of what they got out of the deal. And this happened with a lot of companies. If you read through this article, it talks about all the different acquisitions WeWork made. All that stock that they got sold is pretty much worth half of what they have now. So the fallout from WeWork being valued this much lower, this botched IPO, is not just with WeWork. It's, it's everybody else involved with it. Another article saying WeWork employee options underwater as ex-CEO reaps. In this one, it says for more than 90% of the current and former employees, the share price of SoftBank deal, which values WeWork at about $8 billion, is below the grant price for the stock awards and options they held former executive said. That means the vast majority of employees would get nothing if they sold their holdings today. So not only did other companies that sold their companies for stock from WeWork see enormous value loss, but the employees themselves, a lot of them, they probably weren't getting paid well, but they're going, well, at least I'm getting paid in stock, right? At least I'm getting a good offering there. Nope, they can't even execute their stock options because the valuation has dropped so low that 90% of them can't see those stocks awarded to them. Now, as you know, Adam Newman is the former CEO of WeWork. He was one of the founders of it, and he's leaving the company, taking $1.7 billion with him. Life is pretty good for him. He's worth over a billion and a half dollars for selling equity and being paid out by a bank and a company that's massively firing people and devaluing the stock to everybody else that sold their companies to at the same time. But we have here an article from Derek Thompson, who's an author on The Atlantic, and he has a great article on this. The title of it is, WeWork's Adam Newman is the most talented grifter of our time. Rather than treat WeWork like a community farm, however, Newman used the company like a personal ATM. The most egregious example might be from earlier this year. In January, WeWork announced that it would change its name to the We Company to reflect the fact that its ambitions had grown from office sharing to every facet of collective human experience. Under this new umbrella company, the firm would revolutionize living space. But the name We Company had already been trademarked by Newman. And Newman insisted that his company pay him $6 million for the privilege of using it. So he literally bought the trade we company and then tried to sell that to his own company for $6 million. I've seen some things that CEOs have done, especially early on in companies, you know, where they're using one business they have to kind of help another in these little sweetheart deals. But selling your own trademark to your own company, extracting that money out of investors into your own pocket, that is pretty egregious. Further on, it says, in 2013, Newman tried to buy a small stake in the Chicago building that was in talks to lease space to WeWork. The board pushed back against Newman, pointing out that it was a conflict of interest for Newman to stand on both sides of the lease agreement. The next year, Newman gained control of WeWork and proceeded with his plan of buying up several properties to lease back to his company for millions of dollars. In documents filed with the Securities and Exchange Commission in anticipation of a public offering, WeWork announced that the company had a lease agreement with four buildings in which Newman had an ownership interest. Since 2013, WeWork has paid nearly $17 million to Newman-owned buildings. So not only did he trademark the name, personally, and then sell that to his company for $6 million. But then he went and purchased office spaces that WeWork was looking at leasing and sold those office spaces for WeWork to make $17 million in lease agreements. This is incredible. 
the the level that this guy went to to enrich himself at the expense of everybody else is astonishing. And this continues on. It says, as Newman was becoming fantastically rich by running WeWork, by buying stakes in buildings that he could urge WeWork to lease, and by selling WeWork stocks for hundreds of millions of dollars, his taste grew dare. He developed a thirst for private air travel, which he slacked with the acquisition of a $60 million private jet. He and his wife reportedly spent more than $80 million on at least five homes, including a 60-acre estate in north of New York City and 13,000-square-foot house in the Bay Area. Now, it talks a little bit about SoftBank. This Japanese bank is the one that has funded this whole operation and just infused it with billions of dollars. It says the Japanese conglomerate offered to buy up $1 billion worth of Newman's WeWork shares in addition to giving him short-term loan of $500 million to pay off a credit line from several banks. Finally, Newman will receive 185 over the next four years in exchange for his advice. Let me read just that last part again. Newman will receive $185 million over the next four years in exchange for his advice. At $46 million a year, Newman's annual consulting fee alone is higher than the total compensation of all but nine public CEOs in the United States. So there's nine CEOs in the United States that earn more than Newman with his uh, consulting fee. So what do you even say there? It's difficult to even realize how he was able to do this. He, he didn't do anything illegal. As far as I can see, he didn't do anything blatantly illegal. But as this article says, he's going to be recognized as being the most talented grifter, somebody that was able to to create situations where he is able to extract as much money as possible at the expense of everybody else with no consideration to what happens with anybody else in the process. So I think that as more articles like this come out, this is an extremely interesting case to examine with capitalism, the growth of these funds. I think it'll be interesting to see how this plays out because Adam, although he's enriched himself personally, I think that he will be remembered as somebody that is a talented grifter, the worst type of thing that capitalism has to offer. People that work within the system to enrich themselves at the expense of others. Okay, let's get to some questions here. You can email me at josephcarlsonshow at gmail.com, message me on Twitter and Instagram. The links to all of that is in the description of this video. First one says, hi, Joseph. First of all, thank you for your wisdom shared on YouTube. I'm a 34-year-old registered nurse, have no debt since 2012, and been doing growth investing. Your channel opened me up to dividend investing, and honestly, it's something I never looked into. I spent hours digesting a lot of your videos, and I appreciate all that you do. I have one question, though. I have an M1 Finance account, and I'm fully invested only using your pies. When you make adjustments on your pies, will those changes show up on my end? If not, how can I know when you make changes like replacing a company and adding another one so I can make the same changes on my end? Thanks. Okay, so this is a question that I get a lot that I post in each of my videos. I post a, a couple of links in the description and one of them says main portfolio. The other says Roth IRA because the main portfolio is that one with the $60,000 in it that I show on every video. It's the exact same portfolio. You can click on that in it. It'll show the same breakdowns. It'll show all the different pies and then you can click invest using this pie. And it'll take you there. You can sign up an account and use my same portfolio in investing. And then from there, you can go in and edit it, add and remove companies, adjust percentages, and tailor the portfolio to your own liking. So a lot of people have done that. Some of them have asked me, well, I want it to just mimic yours. If you make any adjustments to yours, will it be reflected on mine? If you use the link, right? If you signed up through the link. That's not how it works. So M1 Finance doesn't make it so that even if you sign up using my link, if I make changes to my portfolio, it's not going to affect yours at all. And I think that's a good thing because 
you know, what if I went crazy or something and just sold out of a bunch of good positions and bought nothing but uh, Herbalife, right? Nothing but some really shady company. You wouldn't want that to automatically happen in your portfolio. So I can't in any way control your portfolio. I can't do anything on my end that will have any kind of effect on your end. So what I do is I put an updated link in every video. It's in the description that's up to date of all my current holdings, all the current allocations. It's kind of like when a hedge fund releases their, I think it's like their 13F filings, right? Uh, which they disclose all their holdings. I do the same thing. I release all of my holdings, the exact allocation, but I do it every single video. So in order to keep track of it, the best way is just to, you know, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I show any changes I make there, as well as just check out in the description of the videos, the link, it'll have any changes there. And I'll announce any big changes in any video. So like if I'm selling out of a position, buying a new position, I'll tell you, look, these are some changes I've made. Tanner says, hi, Joseph. I'm a recent graduate of college and I've got quite a bit of student loans. I was wondering if it's worth it to invest while I'm still paying off loans or if I should invest after I'm done paying off the loans. I'm curious what your thoughts on this were. Also, I'm fairly new to investing game. So I had another question regarding ETFs. Do you think it's a viable strategy to own both ETFs and individual stock to help build a dividend growth portfolio? Or would it be better strategy to own solely ETFs or individual stocks? I think you can't go wrong with either, but I don't know if it's better to invest in one over the other or both simultaneously. I love the show. Keep it up. Thank you. All right, Tanner. Well, thanks for the question. Um, You have two questions there. I'll go ahead and just go through the first one. Should you invest while you're paying off student loans? My answer to this is yes, you should still invest. And with a certain caveat, you should be putting the big majority of the money that you have that's discretionary into your student loans and invest a very small amount. That is what I think is the, the best way to do this because the student loans are probably in terms mathematically a better investment, meaning you're probably paying somewhere between like four to 7%, right? Within that range, some loans might be in 4%, some might be five, six, seven, whatever. Well, to get an investment, with a guaranteed 4 to 7% return is impossible right now. I don't know of any that exists where you can get a guaranteed 5% return. So you can essentially get that return by paying off your student loans early. That's the reduction in the amount of interest you're paying. So you're getting like a guaranteed 4 to 7% return. So mathematically, it makes more sense to pay off your loans first. So I would, as far as that goes, I would just follow Dave Ramsey's advice, list those loans out from smallest to biggest, or if they're all about the same size, if they're all within the same range, list them out from highest interest to lowest interest, just knock them out one at a time and get rid of that student debt. But I still would invest a small amount, even if it's $100 a month, 50 bucks a month. And the reason why is getting your account set up, getting started, building the habit of continually investing, I think is very, very important. If you always have a reason that you're going to delay investing, if you're always saying, after I pay off my student loans, well, I now I owe on a car and I'm going to pay that down. Well, now I got a home and I just moved in and that's kind of expensive with the mortgage. So I'm going to wait a couple of years to invest. A lot of people will keep putting it off for years and years. They never build that habit of investing and they regret it pretty deeply later on. So I'm not saying that you're going to do that, but I do think since you can start investing with such a low amount, you can gain experience there. You can gain an appetite for investing, see what it's like to see dividends come in, see what it's like to see the market go up and down. You get all that experience and you can do that with a small amount of money while still putting the majority of your energy and focus on paying off loans. So that's my advice. That's what I would do. I wouldn't prioritize your investing over your student loans. I just do them at the same time. 
Now for your second question, you say that you're new at the game, you have questions regarding ETFs, should you do a mix, should you do all ETFs or individual stocks? Uh, this is totally dependent on your experience. If you're new, put at least the huge majority of your money in ETFs. It, unless you have the time and the know-how to evaluate companies and see strong companies, ETFs are just an easy way, hands-off, you're going to follow the market with them. So you can buy some great ETFs, VYM, VNQ, SPHD, different dividend ETFs, and put your money in that, and then you don't have to worry about it, and you literally just watch the money come in with dividends. And that's where I'd put like 80% of your weighting starting off at least. You could just do all of it in ETFs, but if you want to pick individual companies, I would start off with a small portion of your holdings being individual until you really become competent in evaluating companies. You have a lot of strategy and a lot of thought goes behind it. So that would be my advice on that. If you don't have a lot of experience doing it, put money in ETFs until you gain that experience. Kyle says, hey, Joseph, I just started following your investment plan three days ago, and I've been watching your videos religiously. I have a question, though. Correct me if I'm wrong, but these dividends you are receiving are ordinary dividends, which is taxes, ordinary income, which is pretty high. How do you plan for this? Are any of them qualified dividends? I'm probably asking the wrong questions. Please enlighten me. Thanks. So, Kyle, uh, some of them are ordinary dividends. They're taxes, income. The majority of them aren't. So the, the REITs, real estate investment trusts, those are taxed as ordinary dividends because the way that a REIT is structured, they have to pay 90% of their net revenue out as dividends. In doing that, they don't have to pay federal taxes. So they're able to disperse a lot more cash, but then we have to pay it as income. So it's kind of a two-sided thing. On their end, they're not paying as much taxes. We have to pay a little bit more taxes on our end. I think it kind of averages out because REITs pay a lot in dividends. So you do get taxed on them. You'll have to look at the tax bracket you're in. For people that are very high income, that might be more. But for most people, that's going to be around 15%. But everything else, all the other just normal equities I own, if you hold those companies for more than 60 days, it goes from ordinary income to qualified dividends, which a qualified dividend is taxed at the long-term capital gains rate of 15%. So if you make $100 in dividends from these qualified dividends, you have to pay 15 bucks in taxes. Not such a bad deal in my book. I'm not worried about paying $15 in taxes when I've made 100 bucks. I take home $85. So that exchange being positive $85 is a good thing in my book. All right, the next question is from Gearhead. This is, a, uh, this is an Instagram one. He says, hello, Mr. Carlson. That's a, I like that. That's a very formal way of addressing me. Mr. Carlson. Okay. I have a question about investing. Currently, I have a Robinhood account that I've started three months ago and a Roth IRA through M1 Finance. For the past four years, my sole goal has been to pay off my house. And at the rate I'm paying the balance down, I'll be done paying it in about three years, give or take from now. I'll be 30, by the way, with the paid off house and no debts to my name. My question is, do you think I should hold off on investing in stocks and my Roth and keep paying and keep the path I'm on? Or should I focus more on investing while making the payoff of the house take longer? Right now, I send more than 50% of my income towards my mortgage. I feel that if I pay it off in the next three years, then I can continue doing the same towards investing in retirement, throwing 50% or more on my Roth and stocks. All right, Gearhead. Well, this is, again, it's similar to the other question of should I pay off my student loans or should I invest? Um, paying off debt, investing, it's, you know, they're, they're all unique decisions. What you're saying is, should I make this really good decision or should I make this really good decision? That's the question you're asking. Should I make this one? It's really good. Or should I make this one? It's really good. Both decisions are really good. There's no horrible answer here. There's no wrong way to really answer this. But what I'm getting from this comment is that you have the opportunity 
to be 30 years old and own everything, including your house. And that's a pretty amazing situation to be in. It seems like you've had a lot of motivation. You've probably already paid a lot of money extra into your home above schedule, above what you need to pay to maintain your mortgage. And what I don't want to do is take that steam and that motivation and take the wind out of your sails and say, hey, stop working on that goal. Now you should start investing. If you've already put a lot of effort and you're already headed that direction, I think you should keep going, get to the finish line, pay off your home. I would prioritize that over investing. So I'm not saying that you do no investing. I think that it might be smart to try to put a little bit of money into your Roth IRA here and there because you don't get an opportunity to go back in time and contribute to your Roth IRA, right? It's $6,000 every year. There's no going back to the previous year and putting money in because now you have more money this year. So you might want to put a little bit of money in your Roth IRA, but I just think in your situation, it seems like you had a clear goal. You're already motivated to accomplish this and you're really close. Being within three years of paying off your home by age 30, most people are paying off their home in their 50s. The average life is a 30-year note and most people, they get a home late in their 20s or early in their 30s and they're in their 50s or 60s when their house is paid off. So you could accomplish that by the time you're 30 and then you're free of all your debt. You'll be able to invest like crazy. So I would continue on with that goal. All right, guys. Well, that's it for me. I'll uh, keep you up with date. I'll have a video out sometime later this week. And if you haven't already, like the video, subscribe, share it with your friends, all that good stuff. I'll catch you guys later.